Hood. Uh, he is a professor at Ozark Christian College. He's been teaching there for about five years. He's actually an alumni of Ozark, and uh, he has four kids. And uh, I was asked, saying, uh, Shane, what, what do you teach there at Ozark? Remind me. He teaches uh, the Gospel of Matthew, teaches the Book of Acts, he teaches Revelation, and uh, some other stuff, uh, introduction to the Gospels, just a variety of classes, and uh, he has uh, just a gift from God in being able to uh, share the, the truth of God, fr- about God's Word, and that's why we're very fortunate to have him today. Would you welcome Shane Wood, please? Well, uh, oh, hello. Good morning. Uh, just from the Ozark family to you all, I just want to say greetings and thank you uh, for being a faithful church. A church that not only is doing amazing stuff here at Fort Scott, uh, but for being a church also that Kevin uh, informed me that has sent around 20 students to Ozark that are currently there right now. Uh, where you've entrusted them to us, and we just want to say thank you for being a church that cares about the church and cares about the mission. Um, I was born in a pew. I, I mean, not literally, but, but I mean, I've been in the church all my life. I, I remember being four years old uh, at, at my small little church of Christ in St. Charles, Missouri, and on the front left-hand side every Sunday night going in there and having to stand up and recite my books of the Bible. I remember giving my first mini-sermon when I was five years old on a Sunday night in that Church of Christ. It was on Jonah, and it was terrible. But I was, I've always been in the church. Uh, my, my family, pretty much whenever the doors were open, we were there. Uh, it didn't matter what it was, if it was just potluck, or it doesn't matter. We were always in the church, which on some levels is kind of shocking about the next statement I'm going to make. Because my first significant interaction with the book of Revelation wasn't until I was about a junior in high school. And that's kind of strange, although not abnormal. For a lot of times in the church, when it comes to the book of Revelation, it's the weird book. It's the book at the end that, you know, no one really pays attention to, but we have to recite it whenever memorizing books. The book of Revelation is the, is, you know, it kind of, it's one of those, you ever been to a family reunion? There's always kind of that one distant uncle that you'd never met before, but you have the same last name, so you have to like shake their hand. That's what Revelation is kind of like. It's that, it's that weird uncle you've never met before at the, at the family reunion, but you have to kind of acknowledge their existence. My first interaction with Revelation was a junior in high school. I was coming home from a friend's house. It was late one night. Uh, and I was coming down 4061, if anybody knows kind of the uh, St. Louis area. I was driving down 4061, and I came up over the hill, and right square in front of my face was the moon blood red. And I about swerved and, and went off the road. I mean, it scared me half to death. I was like, oh no, the world's going to end. I, I, I know I've read in the Bible somewhere that when the moon turns blood red, it's about over. Of course, I was, you know, more of a suburban boy. I didn't realize stuff about harvest moons, and this happens quite often. I just didn't know that. I never really looked up at the sky much. But on that day, I, I couldn't, couldn't avoid it. There's the moon, blood red. So I went home that night, 
It was about 1, 1 1.30 in the morning, and I grabbed my Bible off the shelf, and I immediately turned to the book of Revelation. Because if any book talks about the end of the world, it must be that one. And I remember for the next two, two and a half hours, I read the book of Revelation, all 404 verses. And I remember around 3 in the morning putting down my Bible and being scared out of my mind. Because, I mean, there's like dragons eating babies in this book. Or trying to, anyway. There's beasts coming out of the sea. Jesus looks like a sword swallower. He's got this big sword coming out of his mouth. It's a weird book. And it scared me out of my mind. To which I asked the question, is that what the book of Revelation is supposed to do? Is that, is that what God's word is intended to do? To just scare us? Or, or is God playing cosmic games with us? Where he's the cosmic fortune teller in the sky and he's got this code that if we crack it, we can see the depths of the mysteries of when the world's going to end. But if you can't, well, you're out of luck. It's that question that kind of set the course of the next 10, 15 years of my life. Where I went to Ozark, and I remember sophomore year sitting in Jim Johnson's class on the book of Revelation. And that question started to be answered for me. And it was a question I couldn't get away from. So I went and did my master's degree on the book of Revelation. And then I went and did my doctorate on the book of Revelation. This book grabbed a hold of me. My wife's even said at times, she's like, you know there's other books, right? Like... But there's something about this book that's just grabbed a hold of me and won't let me go. As a matter of fact, it's the book of Revelation that I can confidently say today that's the book that has transformed me almost more than any other book I've engaged. And that's not many people's story. But my heart is that that becomes your story. We're going to talk about some stuff that may make some people a little upset. Uh, you know, you're going to be wanting to write an email that starts off, listen here, long-haired hippie. Like, I know there could be some stuff that makes some people a little upset. So I'm going to lay a couple of principles in place. The first principle is this. The principle of humility, which says this. I don't have it all figured out. I mean, I've read a couple books on this. I've done a couple papers on this. But I don't, I don't claim to have it 100% figured out. As a matter of fact, I know that as I'm standing up here right now, that 100% of my theology may not be accurate. Why? Because I'm human. That's why. That's why I'm thankful that God, you know, get it in heaven. I don't have to take a Bible entry exam. Because I'll probably get some wrong. Not intentionally. My goal is to be as pristine in the truth as I possibly can be. But the reality is, I know I'm human. And I know that I don't have everything figured out. So the principle of humility says this. I'm, in tr I'm trusting that you're in the same boat and that you're willing to help me in the same way I'm willing to help you. So the principle of humility also says, you're allowed to disagree with me. It's okay. We can still be friends, at least from my perspective. Although I did get an email this past week, which I don't think they want to be friends. <laughs> The word heresy was thrown around a bit. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> this is something I want to exhort us, though, in the principle of humility. 
When we disagree, notice, notice the word I introduced that with. When we disagree, number one, we should do it respectfully. I mean, if there's one thing I wish our churches would just do better at, it's disagree. We should be the best in the world at disagreeing with each other. Because even though we can disagree, we're still covered by the blood of Jesus, and that should count for something. Problem is, when it comes to churches, a lot of times when we disagree, well, you know the story. The second thing is this. If you disagree with me or when you do, you got to tell me why. I mean, I, I know that there'll be some people who be like, I just think you're wrong. Listen, I can line up 15 people that'll agree with that. Like, my wife could come give a testimony on that. <laughs> of course I'm wrong, but, but why am I wrong? Because I want to grow too. I want to change too. I'm constantly on this learning journey. And I'm trusting that if I'm wrong, that you love me enough to tell me why it is that I'm wrong. And then hopefully we can develop a dialogue that's fruitful for everybody. Does that, does that make sense? Principle of humility. Number two, principle of submission. This principle says this. I am committed to having the words recorded by the Holy Spirit transform me and not the opposite. I'm committed to having God's word wash over me, to change me, to challenge me, transform me, but not the opposite, because we do that a lot. Um, Rich Mullins once, I don't know if you know who Rich Mullins is. There's a movie coming out about him here soon, I believe. Yes? Around there? Anyway. A phenomenal musician. He was my generation's Keith Green. Okay? Does that help? No? Nothing? Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Rich Mullins was up playing a concert in Wheaton College once. And while he was up there, he's playing the piano. And I love listening to Rich Mullins' concerts, not because of just how great he is as a musician, but because of the stuff he says between songs. It is just brutally convicting. And he's up there and he's playing a song. And he says, you know, you, this tradition, which Wheaton is, is you know, a part of the um, restoration movement tradition. And he's like, this tradition really talks a lot about, you know, taking the Bible seriously and things like baptism and things like that. He says, because you believe what the Bible says, you do. And he's playing his piano and it's all la, 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 la. And he says, the Bible also says, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. He goes, but I guess that's why we have highlighters. Oh, man. It's called highlighter theology, and we do this all the time. We highlight the texts of the Word of God that we want to engage, that usually serve us in some way, comfort us, and encourage us. And then we kind of ignore the stuff that's not really highlighted. And here's the challenge that Rich was given, and that I would give to us in the principle of submission. Look at the stuff that's not highlighted and live by that. Because what you can do is you can actually cut portions out of the Bible and just make the Bible serve you. Make you feel comfortable. In my Matthew class, once we get to the parable or the uh, interaction with Jesus and the rich young ruler, I do ask, show of hands, how many of you have sell everything and give it to the poor highlighted in your Bible? I've never had one. I've never had one student raise their hand and say, me. I'm just like, wow, you know, it's pretty interesting to me to think that in the richest country in the history of the world, that text applies to no one. That's kind of weird to me. But hey, I'm, I'm 
like I said, long-haired hippie. You can disagree with me. We can still be friends. We can still be friends. Principle of submission, though, says this. I'm committed to having the word change me and not the opposite. Which leads me to the third principle. The principle of context. If you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And that's just the truth. You take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say anything you want. If you take my words out of context, you can make me say anything you want. Have you ever had somebody do that to you before? Oh, there's no... Matter of fact, it's, I even tell my students, don't tweet me. Don't, don't, don't say, Shane says in class. Don't do that. Because you're taking that, that one line out of context, you're throwing it out in 140 characters, and I'll get a lot of emails because of it. So just don't tweet me. It's cool. I don't need to be on social media any more than I already am, okay? Because you take my words out of context, man, you can turn me into anything you want. Political debates are all about this, are they not? You see the political debates whenever we get around the political season? It's really, whenever you watch the debates, it's one guy saying, no, you took me out of context, and the other guy saying, no, you took me out of context. And they're just, they're at a context war. You take the Bible out of context, and you can make it say some pretty frightening things. Let me give you a, uh, an example. I'm going to read four texts. I'm going to string them together. I'm going to pull them intentionally out of context, string them all together. But I'm going to tell you what the texts are so that you actually believe that they're in the Bible. Okay? Matthew 27, verse 5. That's one of them I'll read. Luke 9, 60. Luke 3, 1. Or, excuse me, not 3, 1, 3, 11. Oh, okay. John 13, 20. Agree those are all in the Bible. Okay, let's take them out of context and string them together. Judas went out and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise, and what you do, do quickly. Why are you laughing? This is the word of God speaking to you. It's kind of weird, isn't it? You make the, take the Bible out of context, you can make it say some pretty frightening things. An altar call that is not exactly what Jesus had in mind. You know what I mean? We do it a lot, though. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Wait a minute, I thought you were talking about Revelation. We'll get there, I promise. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. You've heard this verse before. Whenever I start to quote it, you'll even be like, oh, I've said it. Maybe even recently. Where two or three gather in my name... There am I with them. You heard that one? I'm not going to ask if you've said that. Have you heard someone say that text before? You see how I did that? That way you're not guilty, someone else is. Anyway, no? Yes? Okay. What's interesting about this text is usually this text is quoted in context like this. Um, I was at a church up in, the, in High Hill, Missouri. That's where I spent my first four years of located ministry. Um, and whenever I was up there, there was one night where we were having this prayer service, and it was on a Wednesday night, and we were expecting around, you know, 30, 40 people. And we get there, and I'm leading it, and I got everything all set up, and three of us show up. You know, and I'm kind of like, oh, wow. Well, a lot of the stuff I had set up is not going to work real well with three people. And so I'm kind of like, you, you guys still want to do this? And then the holy one in the group says, well, you know, we're... Two or three gather in his name. There, is, there he is with them also. I was like, oh, yes, 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 yes. See, usually we quote that text in the context of poor church attendance. That's usually where it is. 
And so we kind of feel bad because not as many people showed up, and it's like, well, this passage encourages us to realize that where two or three are there, Jesus is there with them also. Theologically, though, I have a bit of an awkward reality with that, with that particular verse and the way we're applying it there. It's, it's, I picture it like this. What if you're sitting in a room by yourself? I mean, are you envisioning Jesus peeking around the door being like, man, I wish I could come in, but there's only one person. If two come, then I can come in and be there. But until there's two, I guess I'll stay outside. I, mean, I, I, thought, I thought God was omnipresent on some level. I thought he was everywhere at once. Even if I'm alone, I thought he was there with me also. Maybe that's not what that text is talking about. Maybe the context we're ignoring. You want to know why we get this verse wrong a lot? It's because it's in the context of church discipline. And we don't like to talk about that. Our highlighters don't get real excited when we're talking about church discipline. Because if you just go back four verses earlier, five verses earlier in verse 15, it says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. You ever had to do this before? Or do you use John, or Matthew chapter 7, do not judge lest you be judged, as a means to which you don't actually exercise this community command? It's not about judging here. It's not about kicking someone into hell. It's about going to them and saying, you're out of line. <laughs> you're living a life of sin. And my heart is for you to repent, to restore the relationship, which will probably change even the way in which you talk to someone about their sin. If somebody is sinning against you, you, just don't, you don't walk in just swinging a sword at them. You walk in carrying a cross, hoping that they will be redeemed like you've been that you'll be restored like you have been. And Jesus keeps talking and he says, but if they will not listen, then take her one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Hold that in your back pocket. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Not really seeker sensitive. That verse. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And what does that mean in verse 17? Treat him as a pagan or a tax collector? It means you re-evangelize them. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you just kick them out and don't have anything to do with them ever again. Because how did Jesus treat the pagan and the tax collector? He targeted them. He loved them. He served them. He evangelized them. And then Jesus keeps going. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's authority language. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I want a million dollars. Does anybody want to agree with me on that? Let's pray. He said it will happen. Problem is, that's not the context. He's not talking about where two of us agree on anything in the sense of, I want a million dollars. It's where two agree upon the sin of a brother or sister in Christ that has gone so far astray they won't even listen to the church. 
And Jesus says, if you start to have to re-evangelize them, I'll support you. I'm in agreement with the church on that. And then comes verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them also. You see, in a Jewish court of law, in order for a valid testimony to be considered as an, as an accusation against someone, there must be two to three witnesses that come together that say, in fact, this person did what they did. And that's the context of this verse. Church discipline, not church attendance. But if you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. Kind of like, ooh, Matthew, or not Matthew, Philippians, chapter 4, verse 13. Ever heard this one? I can do what? Yes, we have our cheerleading section. Well done. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Moore was one of my good friends before he moved to Arizona. The only time I ever hear from him now is whenever he's bragging about how hot it is there. Um, but Mark Moore is a pretty in shape guy. I don't know if you've ever met him or know who he is, but anywhere he goes and travels to speak, he usually tries to find a gym to keep in shape. And he was in Colorado once speaking at a youth conference, and he's in there lifting weights in the weight room, and he said all of a sudden he sees these two kids walking in. And the way he described it to me was, he said, yeah, they were scrawny like you, Shane. I was like, hey, that's not nice. But anyway. Um, he said they came walking in, and they go to the bench press. I, I don't know if you know what the bench press is, but the bench press is there's just this bench laying down, and the guy or girl gets down on the bench, and they put the, the bar, the weights on the bar, and they start doing this. That's what they do. Okay? Following me? Make sense? Bench press? Yes? Holler if you hear me? Okay, good. We're here. Okay. I know it's not at 940. Oh, we got to get moving. Okay. Um, that's for me to worry about, not you. Okay. Anyway. So the kid's down there, and he says, Mark looks at him, he says, the kid maybe weighs a buck 15. And he puts around 200 pounds on the bench press. And he's down on the bench, and he starts to lift it off, but his friend has to help him. And Mark's like, well, I'm not going to do my set, because I may have to run over and help them in this emergency. He said that they finally get the bar off of the, off of the, uh, the handle parts, and he lifts it up. He says, and all of a sudden, you hear an audible thud as it cracks on the kid's chest. He's then the kids just squirming and pushing. And then the guy behind him does what normally guys do in the gym. They get up and they think, if you can't lift the weight, if I scream at you loud enough, maybe you'll be able to. So he gets behind him and he's like, come on, Johnny. You can do all things through Christ that gives you strength. In that weight room, we, occur, we encounter a theological problem <laughs> that has one of four answers. Number one. Maybe Jesus isn't strong enough to actually give Johnny the strength to lift up those weights. I don't really like that answer. Or number two, maybe Jesus uh, said he would, and he actually is strong enough, but he kind of thinks it's funny to watch us struggle. That's not the picture of Jesus I see in the Gospels either. Or maybe number three, and you've probably heard this one in a little different context. Maybe Johnny doesn't have enough faith. I remember the first time I uh, had that said to me. It was when my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer my sophomore year of high school. And when she wasn't being healed, although she's fine today. We were told, well, it's because your family doesn't have enough faith. Otherwise, she'd be healed because 
You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Or maybe it's option four. That that's not what that passage is talking about. That that passage isn't talking about Johnny's bench press ability. Or that it's not talking about the healing of my mom that has cancer. If you read the context of Philippians 4, it starts to actually develop a clear picture of what it is that Paul is talking about. Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, who has just started giving money to help Paul's missionary journeys again. And in verse 10, Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me monetarily. Indeed, you were concerned, but, but you had an opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content no matter what the circumstances. I mean, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, because I can do all of this. This is the NIV 2011. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. What Paul is saying is this. In Christ, it doesn't matter what I have. I can always be faithful to the mission. It doesn't matter if I have no money or a ton of money, a bunch of food or no food at all. It doesn't stop me from preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. For he is my strength. He is what causes me to do what I do. He is the one that allows me to endure. For it is him that I rely on, no matter what I have. It changes a little bit of the text. So it's not a bench press moment then. And if you can honestly say it doesn't matter what you have, you will still be faithful even preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth, then you can claim Philippians 4.13 as your own. When you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. What does this have to do with Revelation? When it comes to the book of Revelation, we pretty much ignore its context completely. Matter of fact, when it comes to Revelation, we come with a set group of questions. And we say, the book of Revelation must answer these questions. And here's my question. What if Revelation doesn't want to answer your questions? What if Revelation is trying to talk about other issues that are completely different than what your questions are talking about? We come to Revelation and we say things like this. When is the world going to end? Are we in the seventh seal? When is Jesus coming back? When's the rapture going to happen? We assume that's what Revelation must talk about. The end of the world and when it is going to happen. Here's my problem. Revelation doesn't really want to talk about that. It wants to talk about something bigger than when the world's going to end. What's bigger than that? We'll talk about that in a minute. First, I want to prove this point. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. While you're turning there, let me catch you up what's happened. Revelation chapter 1, John's on the island of Patmos. He sees this amazing picture of the cosmic Christ that says, get your pen ready because I have something to write, for you to write to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Chapters 2 and 3, he's writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Chapter 4, John gets pulled up into heaven. He sees one of the most amazing worship services ever in existence where you have the four living creatures around the throne day and night without ceasing crying out, holy, 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 is Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 24 elders throwing down their crowns, crying out, 
to God, because you are creator and you sustain all things, you are worthy of all of our worship. Chapter 5, the lamb comes on the scene, which is a pretty big relief to John because he's overwhelmed by who can open the scroll. The answer is the slain lamb can. And then comes chapter 6. First four seals are broken, four horsemen unleashed. Then the fifth seal is broken, and we see the souls of the martyrs underneath the altar in heaven crying out, how long, O Lord, to avenge our blood? God gives them a robe and says, here's your T-shirt. Wait a little longer. It's more of you die. That's what he says. Then comes verse 12, the sixth seal is being broken. Verse 12, I watched, who's the I? John, I, John, watched as he, who's the he? The lamb. I, John, watched as the lamb opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. I knew it. Now, now listen to verse 13 and put on your science hats here. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. Here's my question. If one star falls to the earth, what happens? <laughs> Total annihilation. Why? Why? Why is that true? First of all, stars are pretty big. They're big balls of gas and fire. They're a lot bigger than the earth. And if one comes, it's over. Right? What does the text say, though? Stars. <laughs> More than one slams to the earth. What would you call this? The end of everything, yeah? Here's the problem. We're in chapter 6. We still have 16 more chapters to go. If Revelation is a roadmap of the future, that it lays out all the events exactly how they're going to happen, then you have to say that everything after chapter 6 is after the world blows up. <laughs> That's a bit awkward. It gets worse, though. Let's keep reading. <laughs> the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Okay, let's act like the stars didn't do us in. <laughs> Let's act like that all that happens is every island and mountain is removed from its place. How do you think life on earth is going to be, positive or negative? <laughs> yeah. It's probably not going to be very hospitable for life. Wouldn't you agree? You almost could call it the end of life as we know it. Here's the problem. We're in chapter 6. We have 16 more chapters to go. My roadmap's not doing very well at this point. It gets worse. Keep reading. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hidden caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? In the Bible, what would we theologically call the great day of God's wrath? What do we call that? Judgment day. Right? The great day of God's wrath is judgment day. The end of everything. What's the problem? We're still in chapter 6. You see, whenever we come to Revelation with the preset set of questions, and we demand for it to answer our questions, we'll find answers. But what if Revelation's not asking the same question? What if Revelation doesn't want to be a roadmap of the future? 
What if Revelation has something bigger in its target to talk about? Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, also presents a bit of a problem for this. What happens after that is this 144,000 of the great multitude in heaven in chapter 7 are revealed. They're the ones that can stand. Chapter 8, at the beginning, we have the seventh seal broken. Then we have six trumpets through chapters 9, and there are 8 and 9. Then once we get to chapter 10, you have the mighty angel holding the scroll. He says, eat it. John says, ooh, tastes good. Oh, it tastes bad. That, that moment happens. Then the two witnesses in chapter 11 happen. They die, resurrect, ascend. 7,000 people die in an earthquake, but we have repentance. Then comes verse 15, the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet sounded, angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. What's missing? Who is to come. Why? Because he's there. And then it says this, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. What do we call that? Judgment Day. I don't know what else Judgment Day is if it's, the time, if it's not the time that's come for judging the dead, right? What's the problem? We're in chapter 11. The world's end for a second time. <laughs> guess what revelation ends again in chapter 16 it ends again in chapter 19 it ends again in chapter 20 and in chapter 21 revelation ends the world over and over and over and over and over again your roadmap's not doing so good at this point because if you're going to try to predict when the second coming happens you've got to tell me how many times the world's going to end before he comes back again. and that's just weird you know what makes it even more weird chapter 12 Chapter 12, we see this great sign appear in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. We have a pregnant woman. Who is she about to give birth to? Verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Who is this child? Jesus, right? Who is the one that rules the nations with an iron scepter? That comes from Psalm chapter 2, Messianic Psalm. The Messiah rules the nations with an iron scepter. And the woman gives birth to Jesus. Where are we in chapter 12? If you're talking about time, you'd probably say December 25th. If you're talking about a place, you'd probably say Bethlehem. It's the reason, the, this text is the reason why that every Christmas in my nativity scene, in the very back, I have a red dragon. Because of verses 3 and following. She's about to give birth to a child, and there's this big red dragon with an enormous tail, and he swipes a third of the stars out of the sky, and he sits ready to devour the child. And the child is Jesus. And the little town of Bethlehem, the O silent night, isn't so silent in Revelation 12. What he does, he pulls back the veil, and he says, don't you see there's a war raging? Don't you see that even in the most tranquil moments in all of history, there was a red dragon looking to devour the king? Here's the problem. If my roadmap is based on chapter 12, the world will have ended twice before Jesus was born. See what I mean? 
If chapter 12 is the time of Jesus' birth, and I'm looking for a sequence of events of the way in which the world will end in Revelation, then you have to say everything in chapters 1 through 11 happens before Jesus was even born. To which I say this. Maybe we should change our questions. But I mean, take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. We want Revelation to predict the end of the world. But Revelation wants, and here's the issue, Revelation's target is you. Revelation wants to transform you. I don't know if you ever watch little kids. Having four kids of my own, it, it's just covered up a lot of my own childhood memories. And as children, we innately want to be someone different. You just, I mean, it's not that you don't like yourself. It's just that it's more fun being someone else. So whenever you're playing the games, I'd have never seen a kid be like, I'm myself. I don't care what game we're playing. I'm going to be me. Like, no. You're like, I'm Superman. I was always Spider-Man. I always was doing this, and I was like, man, if I squeeze hard enough, webs are going to shoot out. I can feel it. My daughter Paige, every time I sit down with her for a tea party, She's a different princess. Sometimes it's Ariel, sometimes it's Aurora, sometimes it's... We always, innately, want to be someone different. We innately want to be able to transform. And we actually don't outgrow that. For all of us in here, inside of us, we want to be someone different. Maybe just a better version of yourself, but all of us... Hollywood's made billions of dollars off of allowing us to be someone different in a different place for at least two hours. It's something inside of us. I call it the broken image of God that is longing to be someone different. And we have a world right now that's telling us this. You can't change. You were born this way. And what you're born like, you can never change from. And it's no wonder that we have a generation that is swimming in antidepressants and suicide reports. Because the deepest longing in all of us is to transform, and yet we have a world saying, you can't. And the book of Revelation says, oh yes, you can. In Christ, you can be different. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his resurrection, you can transform into someone different. You can transform into the very image of God. That's why we're called the body of Christ. It's because the Spirit's transforming us into Christ. It's why when I look back on myself 15 years ago, I'm going, I don't even know who that person was. That should be all of our story. My God's in the business of rewiring. We can't change then you don't know the gospel story. Revelation's target is you. It wants you to change. But you want to know why we're always worried about prediction when it comes to Revelation, even though consistently in the gospels, in Paul and Revelation, Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief. You're not going to know. I'm just going to be there. We're obsessed with predicting because if we can keep Revelation into the future, it never will be able to impact me in the present. I just want to sit with my highlighters and live how I want. Revelation, if you read it, through the eyes of John, says, sorry, you can't. For the message of the cross is come as you are. 
but you don't get to stay as you are. Everyone changes. And I am very thankful for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being a God that overwhelms us with your spirit. Thank you for being a God that never never lets me stay the same. Thank you that I have hope in your son to be a better dad tomorrow and a better husband tomorrow. Thank you, Lord, for leaving us with enough. Enough of your spirit, enough of your revelation, enough, Lord, of you, so that we can know, Lord, what it looks like and what it means to live in your spirit, to live in your truth, and, Father, to worship you. Father, I want to pray a blessing on this church that they will continue the legacy of being a light to this community and that, Father, they will not fight for themselves, but they will consistently lay their lives down for you and for the sake of the kingdom. May your spirit pursue us May your spirit woo us. May, Father, we be obedient to hear what the Spirit has to say. Let Give us ears to hear, Lord. I praise you and thank you for all these things. In the name of your Son, amen.